This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover, while full memberships get you all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the Yellow Vest protest in France to understand what they are, how they got started, and what implications they have for the politics of neoliberalism, the people, and the climate worldwide. Clips today come from The Real News, The David Feldman Show, The Majority Report, The Brian Lehrer Show, The Dig, The Laura Flanders Show, Common Censored, and The Michael Brooks Show. France is on edge as the so-called Yellow Vest movement is continuing its nationwide protests for a fourth consecutive week. This past Saturday, over 100,000 took to the streets in Paris and throughout the country to protest against the neoliberal government of Emmanuel Macron. The last two Saturdays, though, the protest took a turn towards vandalism and street fights when police intervened with massive tear gas volleys and water cannons and some protesters smashed storefronts and set cars on fire. Over 1,200 protesters were arrested in the most recent action, and over 100 protesters and 17 police officers were injured, with over $4 million in property damage, according to France's interior ministry. The Yellow Vest protest began on November 17th, apparently rather spontaneously, in reaction to the Macron government's decision to raise gasoline prices by as much as 25 cents per gallon, beginning on January 1st next year. This would have raised gasoline to about 159 euros per liter, or to about $6 per gallon. Yellow Vest protesters say this is an unbearable price increase and called on anyone who agrees with them to take to the streets wearing the yellow emergency vest that all cars in France are required to carry as part of an emergency kit. Initially, the protests mobilized nearly 300,000. Since then, the number of demonstrators have declined each week, but the militancy of the protest seems to have intensified. Following the third Saturday protest on December 1st, President Macron announced that he would temporarily suspend the gas tax increase and that electricity prices would be frozen for the winter. This, however, did not appease the Yellow Vests, who now say they want President Macron to resign and vowed to continue the weekly protests until he leaves office. The feeling is that this is, above all, a peaceful demonstration. To continue this action peacefully, what we want is a change of government. That's something we can agree on. Most people, everyone, wants that. We don't want them anymore. They're no longer credible. It's impossible. Here we are now, and as you can see, we're peaceful, and they're gassing us. The Macron government initially tried to dismiss the protests, saying they were organized by the far right. Also, many sectors of the French left have been suspicious of who is involved in the protests and who organized them. Although there is little doubt that supporters of France's far-right and anti-immigrant National Rally Party, led by Marine Le Pen, have been actively involved in the protests, it is becoming increasingly clear that the participants are politically very diverse. It's totally unstructured government movement. There is no, um, you know, uh, there is no, they don't police their own movement. They can't expel people from the movement. Anybody can put a yellow vest. Of course, there have been far-right people there. But I don't think it has anything to do with the far-right as we know it in other countries. In fact, it's to be credited to the French that this movement is largely French and Republican. It was organized without the support of unions and political parties at the very beginning. Unions and parties have now endorsed the protest to varying degrees. Um, 
every major political party officially supported, with the exception of the Greens, officially supported that call for uh, scrapping the fuel tax. Um, but it's important to note these parties and unions were not at the, at, the, at the foundation of this movement. It really started on social media. Um, it started as a, a grassroots uh, movement of people that were, were really upset about this, this question of the fuel tax. It is tempting to see the Yellow Vest protests as a specific reaction to a specific policy, the gas tax increase. But most analysts seem to agree that it goes far beyond this policy. Rather, the gas tax was just the latest policy in a whole series of policies in which France has been gradually dismantling the welfare state by defunding its national health care system, its school system, and its rail system. These cuts have been hitting rural and semi-urban populations far harder than the major cities, which is why most Yellow Vest protests seem to come from these areas. The people that are protesting, the, the Yellow Vest, are people that are not the, the you know, traditional kinds of people that protest in France. They're coming from rural parts of the country. They're, call it, they're coming from what's known as the, the peri-urban areas of, of, of the country, which means the kind of outer bands of, of the suburbs and metropolitan areas. Parts of the country that um, have suffered a lot from budget cuts, from a, a, a freeze or disengagement of a public investment. Um, and this is really how the movement, the movement got started. President Macron, though, has tried to present the Yellow Vest protests as also being anti-ecological, since the gas tax is supposed to decrease gas use and to bring about a shift towards renewable energy in France. You can't be for the environment on Monday and against the fuel price rises on Tuesday. You can't decide on a carbon tax a few years ago and then denounce the cost of fuel today. May I remind you that this tax was voted in 2009, 2014, 2015, committing political figures of various persuasions to it. Protesters, though, respond that not only is the gas tax not earmarked for expanding the renewable energy sector, but it hits people hard who must use their cars on a daily basis and have no alternative for getting to work or for using their cars for work. They did not expect the level of misery that I hear in the testimonies of people saying they can't make ends meet, they don't have anything to eat after the 20th or the 25th of the month. People describing situation in hospital, which used to be one of the best medical system in the world, being absolutely dramatic, uh, waiting lines, you know, I mean, all, all these things. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much France seems to have been destroyed. And I think the problem is not Macron. Macron, of course, was speaking publicly like the elites are speaking privately by uh, showing utter contempt for the people. And, uh, you know, that, of course, uh, made him unpopular. But I think the problem is much, much deeper and has to do, I think, with... Uh, what we call globalization. The, the movement isn't a, a structured movement. It's composed uh, to a large extent of people who have, have little political experience, who are not active members of parties or unions. And uh, there is no leadership uh, that is elected or uh, legitimate of the movement. There are individuals that are kind of figureheads, but they're not um, organically connected to the movement as a whole. Um, to the extent that there's organization, it's it's often local uh, through Facebook uh, groups, through other channels like this, and the dynamic mobilization is has been now you know sort of carried through both both the social media and and the media generally. Um, but it's not a structured movement. Meanwhile, some of France's political parties are beginning to recognize the importance of the Yellow Vest movement and are trying to get in on the action. 
Yes. The far-right National Rally Party of Marine Le Pen, as well as the leftist France Unbowed Party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, are expressing support for the protests. I call once again on the President of the Republic to take into account the suffering that has been expressed, to provide a response, to leave the presidential palace, and to stop stonewalling and locking himself into the Elysee Palace. What happy days we live in today, because finally France has entered a time of general non-submission to an unjust order that has lasted for too long. Also, various sectors of France, such as the pro-communist party's Union Federation, the CGT, and various students' groups, are calling for strikes and protests against the government now. Even one of France's typically very conservative police unions is expressing support. Exactly where all of this will lead is very uncertain. President Macron made a major announcement on Monday, promising an increase in the minimum wage and tax reductions for pensioners and for overtime work. His Minister of the Interior warned that the protests will negatively impact France's fragile economic growth. It is clear that France's working class and lower middle class has been suffering significantly from the dismantling of the welfare state and the imposition of neoliberalism. However, no coherent organized movement has yet managed to lead the discontent towards real political change. We're discussing amongst ourselves to find a solution, because we don't have a leader yet. But there needs to be a leader to end this crisis. We have to find a leader. So when did Macron, when did his government introduce the, the 6.5 cent tax on diesel? I, I don't know for sure. I, I can't, I, it was, it was, it, it hadn't gone into effect yet. It was set to go into effect January. Uh, I think it must have been in this year's budget. But, uh, but what quickly happened with the protests is that it started with this objection and this opposition to the tax, but then it became an objection to a whole host of things. Uh, the, the, the inequality in terms of, uh, income distribution in France, the fact that there are a lot of people working poor in France mm-hmm. who have trouble making their, making ends meet and who, whose buying power has gone down over the years in part because of a heightened tax burden. Uh, so that started getting latched on. Um, and then also Macron himself became a target because he's not terribly popular. Um, and he has this program, which essentially is uh, structural reforms. Uh, so basically to make, make it easier to hire and fire. Uh, reduce some of the, uh, the, the, the massive protections for workers so that employers can be more, uh, agile and, and more flexible about hiring, uh, uh, and not worry about hiring someone because it's so hard, hard to fire them. So the idea was that the, the difficulty in firing people had become an obstacle to, to employment. And then the, the other part of his campaign program anyway was that this flex security model, model. So flexibility for employers, but security for workers. So expanded unemployment benefits, retraining, things like that. The problem with, for Mac, with Macron is that he front loaded all of the flexibility stuff for the employers 
added to that some tax cuts for the very, very wealthy and the security part for workers, he, he put on the back burner. And so in, in addition to a, a sort of arrogant governing style and monarchical governing style, he became known, he became, he's been seen as this very arrogant president for the rich. We're all relieved that he was elected. He was the anti-Trump candidate. Yeah, he ran on this uh, when was left he elected? and right or neither left or right when was he elected? Uh, in 2017, April 2017. And this was he right after th- Brexit and everybody was worried that yeah, and Europe was going to become too. atomized, right? Yeah, and he ran on a very pro-European uh, campaign. He ran on a campaign that was neither left nor right. So uh, structural reforms, but also security and, and social security and uh, and what he hoped for was that Europe on the on the European level, he could make Europe, Europe itself more protective for workers in general. Um, but what happened is that since he was elected, uh, he's governed from the right. And there, there's this old saying, uh, in, uh, in French politics. I think it's, uh, François Mitterrand who said it, that the, the center is neither left nor left. Uh, <laughs> essentially that the center is going to govern from the right. And it's exactly what Macron did. He ran as a centrist and he's governed from the right. So, so when one you other, say, well, one, me, one other background point to the, to his election, though, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's important because it also has to do with the yellow vest movement is that one of the things that happened, which made Macron's election possible is that to begin with the socialist party here, which was the sort of, it had become more a social Democrat party. Uh, so center left kind of like a, a Clintonian democratic party, uh, that the socialists imploded. Um, the the incumbent president couldn't run because he was so unpopular. Hollande. The incumbent, yeah, the incumbent prime minister Manuel Valls was so unpopular that he lost the internal primary in the socialist party. And the guy who won the socialist nomination was sort of like a second tier politician who had some very interesting ideas, especially in terms of green economy. But he just didn't have the weight. And so the Socialist Party imploded. They dropped from like or like the last few elections in the 18 to 20, low 20s to down to like six. Um, and so it looked like the, the, the center right party guy was really going to walk away with the election because everyone knew Marine Le Pen would be in the second round. And essentially, whoever made it in against her was going to win because she has a natural ceiling as the far right party candidate. What happened is that the center right guy, a corruption scandal broke out right when he had won the nomination. And so he dropped in the polls also. He almost made it through to the second round. He still won 20%, but Macron won 24 and Le Pen won 21. So he was eliminated also. So what you had was basically, and, and then immediately afterward in the parliamentary elections, the center-right party also imploded. And so there was essentially this complete restructuring of the French political landscape where the two – it would be as if the Democratic Party and the Republican Party kind of disappeared mm-hmm. as counterweights to the, to the party in power. Macron's movement that he'd used to, to win to, – to, as his personal presidential campaign he turned into a party and won an overwhelming majority. And so he both – 
benefited from this implosion and then sealed its fate with his parliamentary majority. And, and just to, to finish up real quick, what, why that ties into the yellow, yellow vests is because basically what you have is a whole swath of the French population that is no longer really represented by any party. So there were no intermediaries and the labor unions have been dramatically weakened as well. So you had no intermediaries through which they could channel their grievances, through which they could organize protests. So what happened was you had this spontaneous mobilization or so uh, apparently spontaneous mobilization on social media because there was no one else to call for it. Mm-hmm. The parties that have called for protest, no one turned out. And so that's why it was really surprising, took everyone by surprise. That's why the government didn't really know, well, how big is this movement? Who does it represent? Because, you know, social media is a little opaque. It's hard to know how real things are. And then they got 250,000 people in the street, which is, again, not massive, but it's significant. It's not easy to do that. You know, I'm not I'm not denying that. But again, why was it so easy to hijack the movement? Because when the labor unions would march, they had security around their marches. They didn't let just anyone march with their protest. So they had security around the marches preventing the violent people who have a name. They're called casseurs, breakers. Um, they prevented them from joining the protest. The political parties also, they always had a security detail that would make sure that their protest didn't get co-opted. The, the yellow vests don't have any organization and they don't have any leadership. So they don't have any sort of structuring of their protest. And that's why it was so easy for the casseurs to hijack and, and infiltrate. I don't need to tell you that 2018 has been a difficult year for human rights, but have you ever wondered how human rights abuses are documented around the world? With the sheer volume of global crises we're seeing, from civilian casualties in Syria, to ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, to the caging of children on U.S. borders, it's critical that we expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. Human Rights Watch does just that. They are an independent, non-profit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy, often in partnership with local activists and human rights groups. They accept no money from any government, but rely on the support of informed, dedicated people just like you. So if human rights are important to you, and I know they are, visit hrw.org best to make a donation and support this vital work around the world. When you do, not only is your gift tax-deductible, it will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019. That means your donation will go twice as far to advance justice and defend the basic dignity of people who need it most. Again, that's hrw.org slash best. And thanks. We were talking about the uh, the protests. Violent protests. Uh, that took place in uh, France, I think are ongoing, actually. Um, in France, they really know how to protest. Uh, they burn things and they uh, march and uh, they respond. And so um, 
tough stuff. Here is the uh, the best, I would say, four or five tweet assessment of what's going on in um, in France that I've seen. And I was struck by it because, I don't know, I guess I've been sleeping on this, but uh, it was presented by Pamela Anderson. You mean Comrade Pam? You haven't been on this? I have not been on this. Uh, she first posts a, and she must speak French. She's Canadian. And I don't know if she's from um, uh, like uh, Quebec or or not, but um, she appears to speak French. Um, and she posts a uh, piece from Le Mans, France, uh, talking about the it's a, a moment of crisis for the um, the yellow vests. That's what they um, they identify. They a lot of these uh, protesters wear yellow vests, like the reflective vests. And so she uh, she posts that, and then she follows it up with the following tweet. I despise violence, but what is the violence of all these people in burned luxurious cars compared to the structural violence of the French and global elites? She asks. Instead of being uh, hypnotized, instead of being hypnotized by the burning images, we have to pose the question, where did it come from? And the answer is, it came from rising tensions between the metropolitan elite and rural poor, between the politics represented by Macron and the 99% who are fed up with inequality, not only in France, all over the world. The true question is whether the disobedience can be constructive. What comes the day after, can the progressives in France and all over the world use this energy so instead of violence, we have images of constructing equal egalitarian societies. So she has basically better political analysis than the entirety of essentially the global center-left establishment that's attempting to answer this. Yeah, I would say she uh, just nailed it. her, like she her just being able to put it that concisely, I would put myself in that same group of people that she has better analysis than. Um, I would as well. Uh, she, I, I mean, that was extremely astute and uh, concise. Excellent. One aspect that is interesting and troubling is that on one level, these are violent protests and a lot of peaceful protests in Paris against the Paris Climate Accord because people are stressed by gasoline taxes imposed to discourage carbon emissions. One of the slogans protesters are using is Macron talks about the end of the world. We're concerned about the end of the month. So we'll talk about that and more. With us now is Alyssa Rubin, New York Times, Paris Bureau Chief. Alyssa, thanks so much for this. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you so much. Can we dive right in on that angle and that slogan? Macron talks about the end of the world. We're concerned about the end of the month. How much is the movement of backlash against fighting global warming? I, I don't think it has hardly anything to do with fighting global warming. There's a lot of support for that. And I think many, you know, many of the the people who are among the, the yellow vests, the gilets jaunes, are, are supportive of conservation and, uh, you know, moving to, to different kinds of, of fuel that are, are less polluting. 
but I, it, the problem is that it comes in the framework of, uh, of a sort of an entire tax system that has left them feeling as if they are, um, um, paying more and earning less. And they're in France, as you, as you might have read in, in some of the, the reporting out there, it has really, really high, um, payroll taxes. So even if you're paid a wage that might, might be quite, quite reasonable, you, a lot of it is taken away in payroll taxes. And, um, which goes towards things which which people want, uh, you know, health care and unemployment insurance, and 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 France is quite generous in that. But it does mean you you don't have um, as much take home pay, and so then everything you're paying for beyond that, uh, if it starts to rise, whether that's from inflation or whether it's a the gas tax, it really hits you. And the gas tax, I think, was. Um, as they say, it was the the spark that that lit it. The um, um, you know sort of the, the yeah. straw that broke the camel's back. We we hear sometimes in this country that people in France are happier than people in the United States with that balance of higher taxes but higher public benefits. And here we have you know more uh, vulnerability to the ravages of the marketplace, less childcare. To take one example, that's um, Famous for, you know, robust, uh, childcare, uh, services in France. Um, so more vulnerability to the marketplace here, but lower taxes, but that people in France are generally happy with the balance that is struck there. Is that less true than we might think? Well, I, I think the, the, difference is that people, I think what's changed actually, and you saw it in the Marine Le Pen um, National Front movement, and you're seeing it now um, from a much wider group uh, in the in the Gilets Jaunes movement, um, uh, is a desire actually for more government um, um, sort of services and a greater government engagement. Uh, they don't actually feel they're getting enough for what they're paying and that the government should be doing more. Um, you know, for us in the United States, that's kind of hard to imagine. But, but in fact, for instance, the government, in order to save money over recent years, has begun um, really reducing, for instance, train travel, train routes that go to little towns and villages out in, you know, out in the provinces. Well, um, for those people, therefore, their car becomes that much more um, necessary to go to work, to do their grocery shopping, to pick up their kids if they're, you know, at school or at a neighbor's, whatever. And they, they, because there's no public transportation anymore. So so when then they're taxed more on on something like like gas or diesel, um they feel they feel like they're being um caught coming and going. And so they're saying no, you you can't do that. And similarly, you know, there are things like um they'll close uh, what are called maternité or um you know, or places where um uh 
kids can be preschool kids could can be taken care of and therefore you have to go to the next town so everything really for people in certain parts of the country is heavily heavily dependent on cars and that's why this was so socially um, volatile I think Melissa how much is the yellow vest movement a parallel to the politics of the US right now I've heard some some of this that people in rural and exurban parts of the country feel cheated and ignored by urban elites, including on environmental policies, which, of course, are such a main talking point for Trump. Well, there there are analogies, um, but I... I think probably they they break down to some extent um, around in terms of location because at least here in France, a lot of people who are part of the Gilets Jaunes are actually in suburban areas, um, suburban and exurban, but they work in cities. They're not um, they're not necessarily cut off from cities, but they but they live. Um, you know, modest, modest lives. And so, so they're, they're more stratified, more consistently stratified by income, um, um, or more, you know, you could sort of identify them more by income than by, um, by politics. Uh, there's, there are left, there are leftist, uh, gilets jaunes, there are leftist yellow vests, and there are, um, more, more conservative, more far right yellow vests, um, and there are some people who are really just completely apolitical. Um, it's not, it's really not, it doesn't identify as a political party. They really don't trust any politicians. They're sick of them. They think they say one thing, do another. Um, and so it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't really have a political home. That's weird to a lot of Americans who are probably having a tough time getting their head around this. How is it that left and right? I mean, I know in 2016 there was a lot of feeling that the establishment had let a lot of Americans down. So the Bernie Sanders movement flourished at the same time as Donald Trump. Um, but ultimately, those two groups more or less hate each other. Uh, is is there something different going on in Paris? Um, yes, I think there probably is. Um, here, well, first of all, the the far left here and its roots have a, certain things more in common with the with the far right. One thing they they both agree on is high levels of government protection of people in terms of their their social security, their health care, um, all of all of those things. And so, um, so they've both always wanted that to be expanded. It's essentially a very strong um, democratic socialist model for which is was a lot of what Western Europe um, had at, at one time, and now gradually countries have moved away from the kind of state regulation and towards more um, what they call liberal, but we would call more free trade, more capitalist approach. But um, but these both on the far left, coming out of you know sort of admiration for the Soviet Union's. Uh, ideals um, and on the far right with a feeling of sort of anti-immigrant and instead saying the money should, you know, 
the government should spend its wealth on us, the people who are are really here um, or already here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been uh, there's sort of convergence on that point, which is is really interesting, and it is also to some extent uh, there's some convergence even on on immigration issues. You know, let's take care of the poor in our country first. Um, so in that way, both left and right are seen as more what might be considered more clo- closer, perhaps, to the the Trump constituency. But they really, but they don't have any of the Tea Party. Um, uh, sort of um, gestalt. They they really want government. They don't want less government. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's a really fundamental difference in Europe. Um, there is not an argument here about the value or importance of government. Whereas in the United States, we are still fighting that that um, that war. Do we? How much government do we want? Do we want it at all? What role should it play beyond the police and an army? Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. beautiful multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code LEFT. The movement, of course, began as a protest against a fuel tax that Macron imposed in the name of fighting climate change. What does this reveal about neoliberal approaches to the climate crisis? And has the Yellow Vest movement managed to break out of this box that Macron put them in as as these troglodyte opponents of the earth while he's trying to do the right thing for Mother Nature? These these backward hicks are standing in the way of of a solution. Well, if I may, if I may answer that one, I think that actually it's 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 very interesting to see what has happened um, last week when there was a major climate demonstration that took place uh, in Paris. Uh, it was sort of pre-scheduled. It was going to happen irrespective of what the Yellow Vest uh, movement was doing. And um, uh, basically, you know, the government asked the organizers of that protest to blow it off because they didn't have enough manpower to actually control two major demonstrations at the same time. And the organizers basically rejected and they said, look, uh, the social justice, the struggle for social justice and the struggle for climate justice are one and the same. And we cannot just blow off our marge Uh, just because there are people demonstrating for social justice. And uh, so I think that's very significant. And many of the people who participated in that demonstration actually donned yellow vests in solidarity with uh, their comrades um, elsewhere in town who were protesting against this so-called ecological tax. 
Um, so I think it's interesting to lo actually look into that tax and what it really represents. Um, because while Macron sort of branded it as an ecological tax, uh, I think it's in reality much more like um, a measure that he took in order to redistribute even more resources from the bottom of society to the top. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we've been seeing, um, you know, since the very beginning of his presidency, because the moment that he got to power, he basically immediately abolished the solidarity wealth tax in the process, mm -hmm. handing over four billion euros to, you know, the richest people in society. Um, and then he strengthened this uh, sort of called Orwellian uh, tax credit for solidarity and employment, which is basically a tax cut and exemption program that, again, transferred 41 billion uh, euros a year to French companies and multinationals. Uh, and then as part of the 2018 budget, he established a flat tax that lowered the average taxation rate on capital and basically handed another 10 billion to the richest. Mm -hmm. So then you come along and you impose a so-called carbon tax on, um, you know, uh, on, on fuel. And uh, it turns out that that tax actually weighs on working class and middle class people five times as heavily as it does on upper class people. And then don't forget that, you know, Macron is someone who has basically, you know, dismantled uh, the railways, who is in the active process of completely reforming the, the main railway company. It's someone who has cut the uh, budgets of local municipalities, which are responsible for providing local public transport. Uh, so many um, sort of public transport opportunities in small towns across France have disappeared. And uh, people uh, of moderate means who need to get to work and need to bring their children to school are entirely dependent on their cars in order to be able to do that. So essentially, this tax um, makes it impossible for them to you know, get to the end of the month. Uh, and, in, and in many cases, it's just too much of a burden upon people, uh, very ordinary people. And, and in that process also shifts the costs um, for the climate crisis, let's say, onto some of the poorest members of society. So I think that what you would really want to do, and that's kind of the argument that's emerging out of the Yellow Vest movement, is that instead of putting this sort of ecological carbon tax upon the poor, is that you should put it upon the rich. You should put it upon the companies that are responsible for causing this crisis, the fossil fuel companies. Um, and I think that's one of the most exciting things that has happened in the course of this struggle is that, you know, people have been blocking a number of total uh, oil refineries, total being, you know, uh, a huge French uh, petrol petroleum company, one of the largest in the world. And people have started to actively blockade them, their refineries, in order to make the statement that, you know, these are the kind of companies that we should really be taxing. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones who should really be paying for the enormous climate crisis in which we currently find ourselves. McCraw has been cr criticized, as you just mentioned, for trying to solve the climate crisis on the backs of the poor and working class. But it seems like maybe an even better way to describe it was that he is that he's using the climate crisis as a pretext to just pillage the poor and redistribute their wealth upwards. Yeah, that, that's what angered a lot of people because he had it in fall to injury because he, he shamed people. I mean, for for the the, the first weeks. Um, when the, the movement started, you had the the, the new environmental uh, minister who kept saying that we're doing this for climate change and blah, blah, blah. And then we pointed out that only 20% of the, 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 the carbon tax was to be devoted to actual, you know, environmental um, program and stuff like that. So it was only they just needed to balance the budget because they had given so many uh, billions to the rich. And when you see how much it, it was about less than the exact amount they they had given to the rich. So first, it was not part of the the the, 
uh, any new green deal that were there, they were planning. There was no alternative to cars that was uh, that was actually uh, viable for people. So people felt felt very really insulted because it was like they didn't care uh, for for climate change or transition e- e- ecological transition when they said we are aware that what is happening and we are ready to uh, also change our ways of living or, or moving and stuff but we need to have infrastructure to do that so and it also show i mean the high level of consciousness of the people uh, and uh, and the connection that happened when you are the the organizer of the the climate uh, climate change demo last week who actually um, uh, said that uh, we won't be, uh, you know, opposed uh, to to working class people, and actually, um, the, the responsible for all the situation is the state because you don't uh, promote actual uh, transformation and and a new transport system and stuff. And you have also to to have in mind that um, in last September, just just uh, three months ago, the former environmental minister uh, Nicolas Hulot, who was this uh, very famous. Um, TV guy. Uh, he was one of the civil society uh, people who got into uh, Macron government. So he, he was very, he was the third in, 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 the, in the government. Uh, he, he actually resigned because he said after a year, he realized that the government wasn't serious about climate change, actually, uh, and that um, we couldn't actually change anything if we stayed uh, if we stay within the EU treaty and neoliberalism was incompatible uh, uh, with with an actual uh, environmental transition so it was a, it was um it was a bit major blow uh, to the government, to Macron, because he actually did it uh, live on radio uh, without uh, warning the, the prime minister or the president. So it, it was a major blow, and, and, and because he's one of the most popular, and he's still very popular uh, in France, uh, because he's had this year-long uh, TV program about uh, environment, uh, the environment and stuff like that. So um, when you, you have that in mind, you realize that people were not, fooled by by all the the justification and people said actually this is not uh this is not an environmental you know uh transition uh this is this is bullshit you're trying to to and you're trying to shame us um so so it's good that people in France have not been fooled by this because green neoliberalism is politically and incredibly dangerous. Just look at the, what's happening in the United States where where Trump and the right have been able to pit the earth against the working class but i think that the, the the what has happened over the past week is that people are just like actually saying we we're ready we've been struggling for years we've been told that we have to pay the debt and stuff like that we've been making sacrifices and we know for the environment things need to change but the, we need to have you know uh, train stations up in small cities we we need to have you know uh, our housing uh, uh, renovated so that we don't you know uh, use too much energy and stuff like that and I think that there's a high level of consciousness about the, the situation but also about the fact that um, everything is is organized in a way that prevents people from actually you know uh, taking part in this in this in this change and uh, so that's that's actually uh, angered the people the most, and and after two weeks of trying to sell it as a uh, a green a green tax and stuff like that, they they just 
they don't. I mean, the the, the last um, uh, thing the government and, and the president uh, in his speech didn't even talk about tran- ecological transition or anything because uh, people just realized that it had no, nothing to do with that. And I think it's it's uh, it's actually he managed to to unite and to to unify those different sections of social movements that we didn't know how to do it before. It was very difficult. The previous climate march was where where really uh, just a category of the population, very urban, uh, middle, higher middle class and stuff like that. And Macron actually united uh, a much wider range of people around ecological issues and stuff like that better than anybody else. Protesters hit the streets in opposition to the policies of President Macron. The Wall Street Journal called it a global carbon tax revolt and sounded surprisingly sympathetic. Quote, Nothing reveals the disconnect between ordinary voters and an aloof political class more than carbon taxation, wrote the editors. Rupert Murdoch's journal wasn't the only money media to find in the French a protest movement to get excited about. Especially when those actions turned violent, the very same U.S. media that are loath to cover protests here and beyond skimpy in their reporting of everywhere else were all over the so-called Yellow Vest Rebellion. And no wonder, along with the close-ups on the graffiti at the Arc de Triomphe and the burning cars on the Champs-Élysées, the reporters were able to tot up the damage to people and property and the French presidency for taking action on climate. And to make their real point, namely, the lessons for Democrats. France yellow vest protest should be a lesson for green activists in the U.S., Fox News declared bluntly. Better think twice, they and others intoned, before acting on climate demands if you're the leadership of the new house. There's just one problem. The French protests are complicated. The enemy here isn't climate policy, it's neoliberalism, wrote Kate Aronoff in Jacobin. By many accounts, Macron's paying the price not so much for taxing carbon as for ignoring inequality and passing tax breaks for the rich while pushing more austerity on people already at breaking point. As for carbon taxes, what American Green New Deal activists want aren't carbon taxes, an idea that really came from the right. They want investment in public infrastructure and a staged phase out of fossil fuel along with a fast phase in of green jobs. Conveniently enough, thousands of young Green New Deal activists were just then flooding Congress as the French protests were reaching their climax. But getting the facts from them about their demands wouldn't have been as convenient. And it would have required not just talking about, but talking to actual protesters on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm wondering if one of the reasons that uh, France continues to have this kind of much stronger, vibrant history of protest against um, or or just protest in general uh, is because of the way their history is taught over there. And the French Revolution is is so, uh, you know, well taught and well kind of remembered in that way, whereas 
we're not in, in in this country. Our revolutionary movements have all been white, whitewashed or covered up, with the only exception being our initial, uh, you know, development of the United States of America against uh, revolting against England. But even that is not really taught as a as a kind of revolution. These are these were true, you know, revolutionaries at the time against England. It's taught more as just like, oh, this war was fought against England for our independence, and, right? And there there were no guillotines. People weren't that uncivil. <laughs> You know, we talked about the civility issue last week. Right. Uh, and actually, what I love, they actually brought guillotines to one of the protests in France. Which, uh. <laughs> um, but so I think the other thing to that to that point, I think you, you make a really good point. And I know I've never been to school in France, so I can't speak to this specifically. But having gone to school in, in the U.S., of course, I can say that we kind of looked at it as one and done. Like, oh, we fought that revolution, so we don't have to do that anymore. Well, and revo- Also, because we're still a republic, so isn't that nice? Well, and now revolutionaries are evil people that need to be stopped, generally. Well, right, because, it, yeah, and so the, the historical context of revolution is is lovely and pure, and, <laughs> and they never hurt anybody. They just threw some tea into the harbor. Uh, but... Of course, now it's like, oh my God, look at people like Shay and uh, look at the Black Panthers and right. There's like, so many oh movements, God, or even just people. or even just unions standing up, and you know they were people were killed when these unions, either you know, right. Pinkertons are murdering people. Oh yeah, and and that's either. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that Howard Zinn's book, uh, People's History, is a classic or whatever is is so important is because. Uh, that history is being forgotten, but it's intentionally forgotten because it's important for the ruling elite to ha- to help us uh, forget that, to make sure we aren't, you know, naming boulevards after union leaders that uh, d- yeah. died in fights. That's a great point. I mean, a lot of Americans don't know that May 1st uh, is actually an American holiday, May Day. Right. That was the Haymarket riots that happened where predominantly anarchists were hanged and made an example of for demanding human rights basically worker rights in 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 the workplace right may day started here and now we don't celebrate it (laughs) yeah now we celebrate may 1st actually if you look it up is law day officially (laughs) officially it's law day so that tells you what we've what we've done and and richard wolf talks a lot about how we've done how we've done a, a great job of completely squashing the worker movement the labor movement and so what we see in france is really where the U.S. was on its way had the the government not done such an, an excellent job of crushing the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, the anarchists, who are really the the driving force behind uh, the rise in union memberships and the, the the rise in labor rights movement. So France is doing a great job of of highlighting the power that we have, we workers. And, you know, as IWW points out, like we're all workers, like whatever industry you're in, we're all working to, to basically make sure that the rich stay rich and that we don't. Well, and, and as I've said before in my stand-up act, you know, they, they love to say, oh, this is a class war whenever workers stand up. Oh, you want class war? Or even just demand that uh, the tax increase on the rich in order to pay for uh, so much of our society. Um, they say, oh, you, you, you want a class war that's, you know, that's class warfare. When in fact, what we're in the middle of for the past, I don't know, 40 years has been a class war done quietly by the rich. I'd against- say we've been in a class war since feudalism. Well, <laughs> 
yeah, okay. Well, that that's true, but I, I meant it 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 kicked into high gear after the right. pa- after yes. the Powell memo. Yes. Um. And and so we've been in the middle of this class war, but most workers are completely unaware of it. So that's why you see like the gutting of the you know the the worker pay has stayed the same for whatever th- three four decades, whereas uh you know uh the rich pay has gone through the roof. So. So I think like just to wrap this up, I think, um, first of all, it's important to, to recognize what the yellow vests are protesting so that people don't get confused and say, Oh, they're, they're protesting green energy. No, definitely not. They're protesting the concept that any sort of shift towards addressing climate change has to be borne by the poor, uh, as opposed to the industries that are perpetuating climate change. That's the first thing to note. And the second thing I think that's really important is that this shit works and that I know that in the US, there's a lot of this like him hawing about tactics and like, oh, you couldn't possibly throw stones. You couldn't possibly do things like that. And it's like, well, sorry to say, but those tactics work. And that doesn't mean that you should only use those tactics, but you should always, I'm a big believer in having all of the tactics on the table at all times. So everything from, you know, confronting your members of Congress, like we see with the Sunrise Movement, to yes, riding in the streets. Those tactics should all be on the table at all times, because when it is a matter of life and death with regards to people having enough food to eat, having enough money to survive, as well as the issue of climate change, when it's that when it's that big of a crisis, you have to look at your tactic toolkit in a really realistic and not a, a, a utopian uh, perspective another one to keep on the table coordinated dance numbers in the streets all right like uh, see my vest see my vest put my anger to the test oh my god did you just come up with that yes i really like that all right we got to get it to them (laughs) so i think you should try to get back to france and uh do that flash mob and then if anyone's ever seen lee dance i think we can all agree that uh that's what you need for the revolution hopefully no one's ever seen lee dance This is a clip of Macron. I'm going to, it's, it's, uh, subtitles for those watching on YouTube. And I'm going to read uh, or speak over it rather, uh, what he said for those listening on podcast. It was at first an anger against a tax, and the prime minister responded by canceling and removing all increases scheduled to start for the next year. But this anger is deeper. I feel it is justified in many ways. It is 40 years of malaise that is resurfacing, malaise of workers that can no longer find places for themselves, malaise of territories, neighborhoods, villages, and we will see public services diminish, an environment that is disappearing, democratic malaise where the sentiment is not being heard is growing, malaise in the society in the face of changes in our society, a secularism that has been disturbed and up against a way of life that creates barriers and distance. It was a long time coming. It's here now. No doubt, over the past year and a half, we have not provided answers. I take my share of responsibility. And I may have given the impression that I did not care about that, that I have had other priorities. I know that I have hurt some of you with my words. 
Many other countries are struggling through bad times. Sorry if you offended. <laughs> Sorry that you feel bad, but I believe we can find a way out of this together. I want this for France because it's been our mission throughout history to launch a path that has never been explored. For us and for the world, we will respond to this economic and social urgency with strong measures, by cutting taxes more rapidly, by keeping our spending under control but not with U-turns. We want France where one can live in dignity through one's work, and on this point we have gone too slowly. I want to intervene concrete, uh, quickly and concretely on this issue. I ask the government and parliament to do what is necessary, so we can live better in his work sal so one can live better on his work salary from the beginning of next year the salary of minimum wage worker will increase by 100 euros this month star uh, starting in 2019 with no extra cost to employers for those who get less than 2000 euros each month starting in 2019 we will cancel social security tax hike passed this past year the effort we asked for was too big and it was not fair so these are uh, Macron's words. You could see there he's conflating a lot there. He's conflating some of the xenophobia that has spiked in France due to immigration. He's conflating in the rhetoric of a 40-year problem. He's still taking aim at the French social model. And along with that, he refused some of the demands of protesters to reinstate a wealth tax, which of course not only needs to happen but needs to be radically uh, expanded as we seize oligarch money to invest in the future to cause the to to address the problems that things like this gas tax were really supposed to address theoretically, and let's get specifically into that. France in France, eighty percent of fuel is diesel. In the just the past year, the price of diesel has risen by twenty three percent. Macron's plan on the increase of diesel sparked widespread protest. And the yellow vest movement comes from a, a French law that requires every vehicle owner to purchase a yellow dress, a yellow vest rather. American liberals were quick to attack the protests and leftist support for them and back Macron's regressive policies by suggesting that it was an anti-environmental movement, one opposed to dealing with the demands of changing our energy economy and dealing with the climate crisis. And I won't even give them credit for being half right. They're less than a fourth right. They are entirely missing the reality that this punitive measure to punish everyday workers when the real foundations of the climate crisis are in a, over in a consumeristic capital economy, driven by capital, driven by oligarchies and energy cartels that warp policy take money out of people's pockets and damage the public good. The only way to address this is by nationalizing oil companies, mass redistribution of wealth, and extremely high taxation for the wealthy. And it's why one of the major demands of the, of the movement has been the reintroduction of the tax on the wealthiest French people, something Macron repealed and has still not back down on, you notice in that speech. Much of the activity of the Yellow Vest movement has occurred in areas between the rural and urban communities. For those, there is little choice but to drive a car. The tax is overwhelmingly would have been on the backs of those who could least afford it. The flames were only stoked when the debates in the 2019 finance law revealed that more than 500 million euros from the fuel tax will go not to ecological transition, but to cover the deficit 
of the 2019 budget as a result of the abolition of the wealth tax, literal redistribution of wealth from the bottom to the top. The protest movement has contested this important terrain, and we will see more and more in years to come of who should pay for the destruction of our environment. Well, we say the industries and interests that cause that destruction, not the people living inside that context. The movement has, of course, rapidly expanded and now includes public sector workers, students, small business employees, shop owners, and artisans, and a host of precarious workers and long-term unemployed in addition to a proliferation of women taking the lead. It's important to note that though this is a protest against austerity, it has not taken place in the workplace, and it requires a more careful analysis of its goals. There have been a variety of sentiments and strategies deployed in these protests. And people on both sides of the political divide have tried to make it theirs. The fascist forces of Marie Le Pen and the National Front have tried to make it uh, their own. Uh, Melanchon and the left have embraced it and tried to make it their own. But instead, what we see is a proliferation of organic uprisings across the country demanding very good things, but also attracting all sectors of politics, including uh, fascists. That's why we have uh, we've seen in certain areas uh, chants break out that are racist, homophobic, xenophobic and sexist in nature. Uh, we've seen uh, the efforts of the National Front to woo the movement and try to make it part of their own fascist movement. The Italian example is very cautionary, where similar protests had taken place in Italy and were capitalized by the Northern League without a strong leftward presence and, of course, a center not able to properly respond to these demands and, in fact, creating these demands. So the task of the left is to go into this contested space recognize the absolutely correct sentiments there, but not have a sort of mystical belief in the power of crowds. Crowds draw everybody, and movements draw a vast amount of people, things, and ideologies. It's a contested space. The sentiment, the anger, the movement is right, uh, but we can never allow it to be defined on fascist terms. Macron's minor con uh, concessions should not halt the movement that has already been able to seriously challenge the government. It's unclear what will come of this movement, but it has radical potential to create a new political formation that challenges the tired politics represented by Macron. That's right. Macron's 1990s AOL politics might be the sort of cause celeb and de jour of delusional, disconnected, centrist types. But in the real world, this type of politics is already aged out and done, even as it has a late and disastrous arrival in France. The continued fight will define the next phase of the ecological movement. Will, accept, will it accept its responsibility to the planet or will it use an outsized political power to try to make the poor pay for the greed and abuse of the rich? We've just heard clips today, starting with the real news laying out the basic facts of the protest. The David Feldman Show explained the French politics in play and the details of Macron and his lack of political capital. The Majority Report highlighted the very astute observations made by none other than Pamela Anderson. The Brian Lehrer Show explored the demands and sentiments of the French and the basis for their debate over taxes and government services. 
The Dig discussed the destructive effect of attempting to use neoliberal policies to address climate change. The Laura Flanders Show corrected the cynically misleading conservative media's explanation of the protests. Common Censored discussed the nature of revolution and the effectiveness of protest tactics. And finally, we just heard the Michael Brooks Show explaining the protests from a progressive perspective and tying it to what this all means for the left more generally going forward. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips with even more discussion and analysis of the LFS protests, and a special note about patrons and and today's topic because it is entirely thanks to patrons who vote each week on what topics the show should cover that I covered the LFS at all. Uh, As I mentioned regularly, voting on a topic poll each week is one of the benefits of being a patron at the $2 level, but usually there's a vote on a list of topics, and you know sometimes people have other suggestions of topics they leave in the comments, uh, but this week, the yellow vest wasn't on the poll, but so many people piped up asking for it that I realized that it needed to take priority uh, before the holiday break. You know, it, it was on my radar, but it was a major oversight that I didn't even think to include it uh, as a topic option. So you have all those fine folks to thank for now having a much greater understanding of a really interesting topic. Now, if you would like to join in on that weekly vote and conversation we have to prioritize topics for the show and to hear the bonus episodes I put out with additional clips and commentary, check out all of the details at patreon.com slash bestofleft, which you can find right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. Now, one other special note, uh, we heard a clip today from Common Censored. It's co-hosted by my friend Lee Camp, so I wanted to take this opportunity to let you know his new comedy special was just released. Here's the trailer. Wall Street is a Ponzi scheme. We don't need police. Pharmacists are just drug dealers and lab coats. Those dryer seats are made with animal fat. Strawberry flavoring, a lot of it came from a beaver's anal gland. Diamonds are rare. Think about the amount of social engineering it took to convince our whole society that we had to value those things so much. And when you're a little kid, they sit you down and they're like, hey, if you ever want a woman to love you at all, you have to get her this shiny rock or she doesn't give a shit. And if you're here and you're married and you're, I'm not trying to take your diamond, you know, you have a diamond ring you love, I'm not trying to take it away. That's great. That's, that's fine. I just want you to know it's worthless. Man, I thought I looked like a vampire. You've got it down pat. Holy shit. That special's called The Super Patriotic Very Uncle Sam Comedy Special Not Allowed on American TV, and it's available to purchase at LeeCampComedySpecial.com, and is completely self-produced, and 10% of sales are going to Veterans for Peace and Food and Water Watch. And now, at last, we will hear from you. Hi, Jay, Jeff, Charlotte. I enjoy your show. I was just listening to your podcast on this war on Christmas. And it's interesting that the conservatives have actually, they're catering to their base because they have this binary way of thinking that it's an either or black, white, tunnel vision view. That if you say happy holidays, you're against Christmas. And I've never heard anybody bring up the simple point that I say happy holidays and season's greetings for one reason. Because I always get my Christmas cards out too late. 
like right now. I'm about to send out the Christmas cards. I have to have a holiday greeting because most people are going to get their Christmas cards after Christmas. So I just say happy holidays or holiday greetings to you. It has nothing to do with anything else. It has nothing to do with Kwanzaa. It has nothing to do with, do with Hanukkah. And it might have something to do with New Year. I'm not sure. But I usually get my cards out between December 25th and New Year's Day. All right. I just wanted to put that out there. I, I'm just wondering, does anybody else have that same situation? Thank you. I enjoy your show. Hey, Jay. This is Kyle in Portland. I was just thinking about your argument thing, seeing the other side. I'm an atheist, and a lot of that's probably because of my childhood being raised a Seventh-day Adventist. I wouldn't just call myself agnostic. I have to be an atheist because, you know, fuck religion is kind of my whole thing. So, and even coming from that background, I just can't understand why you would believe in God, or I could understand, but the only way I could understand is by being a condescending prick and thinking, you know, oh, well, you're too scared to face the truth, or you just can't accept that your loved ones are gone, or you got to believe in ghosts, or your whole philosophy's a cop-out, that kind of stuff. So that's a hard one to see the other person's point of view. And the other one is, like, abortion. I feel like people are just on one side... I mean, I'm pro-abortion, but I, I still think it's kind of a morally cool thing to do, like morally distant. And, uh, like, I could see why the other side would just see it as being murder. And no matter if you're saving the mother's life or whatever reason it, we come up with that validates why it's okay, it's going to happen anyway. I, I could see why... There's just no understanding the other person's point of view once they come to it on certain things, it seems, because it's so, so separated, so far apart. Uh, me and my mom recently were talking about the whole statue issue. She's not necessarily conservative. I don't know. She's just, she hangs out with conservative people, so she's got her points of argument. And we did come to a nice compromise with that. Basically, I was like, well... If they're going to leave the statues up, there should be a memorial to the slaves right across from it. I, I would prefer that they're removed and put in the museum. There you still got your history, but people don't have to look at it. She would prefer they just be left alone, but she wasn't opposed to the memorial, and I think that would kind of make both of us happy. So I think there's compromise on some things. Some things are just too far apart, and sometimes we just can't see the other side. Anyway, there, there's food for thought, basically. Later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a couple of comments in response to these voicemails. First of all, to Jeff and his description, sort of the the black and white nature of of the way some people, primarily conservatives, see the uh, – it shouldn't even be a debate. But for some reason, there's a debate between Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And um, 
I didn't realize until today that there's sort of a parallel. It's not a perfect parallel, but I think it's instructive anyway that so, so anyone who says happy holidays knowingly, intentionally, like politically, what they mean is to be inclusive. That's, that's the point. And, uh, Merry Christmas, anyone who is like really fervently in favor of continuing to say Merry Christmas, if they're saying it politically, what they mean is I'm being exclusive and I want to because we're the dominant culture and I want to reinforce my dominance. That's what they mean. And, uh, the, the, as I said, not perfect, but sort of instructive parallel that I, I thought of today is the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, uh, controversy debate because it was based on a fundamental misunderstanding, first of all. But anyone who had a problem with the term Black Lives Matter, the reason they had a problem with it is because they mistakenly believed it to be exclusive. No one ever said it, but in a lot of people's minds, they added the word only to the beginning of that phrase. So they would hear someone say Black Lives Matter, and what they would think is that person means only Black Lives Matter, which is ridiculous and asinine in every way. And so they had they had to do what they felt was a correction and say, no, that's wrong. It's actually all lives matter. And so in that case, perversely, in their own minds and not in reality, they thought they were the ones being inclusive. But of course, it was it was based on a misunderstanding to begin with. And to point out and to keep in mind, in which instances do these people, let's be real, the vast majority, completely white people, in, in which instances do they think it's important to be inclusive? Only when it ensures that it includes them. If it's being exclusive and they're on the inside and everyone else is on the outside, well, that's okay. Okay, secondly, uh, for Kyle and, and his comments about sort of understanding the other side, um, I think maybe Kyle misunderstood my point, and if he did, I'm sure other people did, so I, I just want to go over uh, to, to clarify. Kyle is expressing, like, um, you know, I have a hard time seeing the other side because our opinions, if they're so diametrically opposed, it's hard to see things from their perspective. And to be clear, I don't mean understand the other side in like a compromise, understand the other side and try to find common ground sort of way. That is not at all what I mean. What I mean is understand the other side. Like if you were taking a debate class and someone, and, you know, and the teacher gives you a topic, sets two sides, and then tells you which one you have to debate. And if you're good at debate class, you have to be able to do either. So the example I gave was like trickle down economics versus trickle up, you know, supply side versus demand side. And, you know, even if you only believe in one of those, Hypothetically, you could argue either side if you understand it. And so like with Kyle and religion, he's actually in a really good position having grown up religious. Like he might be totally disdainful of the concept now, but he has a, a really solid foundation of why people believe that way. So if, if he was trying to find common ground, 
then he would fall into the trap that he was describing. He's like, look, I, I can hardly, you know, I, I can't help but be snarky about it. But what I'm saying is, at least in this exercise, this concept that I'm putting out, it's not about tr- trying to find common ground. It's just about being able to explain your opponent's point of view. So if you're, if you wanted to debate religion in this case, Kyle should be in a good position to pretend like he's arguing for the pro-religion side because he's certainly uh, well-versed in arguing the anti-religion side. And so all I'm saying is your ability to argue the point that you believe in is only strengthened by your ability to understand the perspective you're arguing against. That's it. So hopefully that makes things a little bit clearer. I, I realize now after hearing Kyle's message that, um, I mean, what, what gets talked about a lot, sometimes even on this show, is, is about understanding the other side for the sake of coming to common ground. And at least with the concept that I'm putting forward, the idea that we need to be able to uh, understand the other side's argument. Like, And just to refresh, I was saying that um, it, it would make the media enormously better if instead of people being asked for their own opinion, if they were asked to explain the opinion of their opponents. Because if you can explain the opinion of your opponents, it really bolsters your credibility because it means you know what you're talking about, not just your own opinion, but what you're arguing against. Whereas anyone who can't explain what the other side thinks should be dismissed out of hand because if you don't even know what you're arguing against, how can you possibly know that you're right and they're wrong? So hopefully that clears things up. This is all about establishing greater levels of credibility and bolstering your own ability to make an argument. It has nothing to do with compromise. And and I mean, sometimes I think compromise and seeing the other side can be good, but that happens to not be what I'm talking about in this instance. So with that cleared up, I just want to say uh, we're leaving for the holiday. We're going to take two episodes off. Uh, I hope that this episode has, has left you with a revolutionary spirit in your heart that'll help power you through the holidays and beyond. We plan to be back with new episodes starting January 1st, so look out for those. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.